0: We're back for another episode of the Conversing Labs podcast here at Reversing Labs. I'm your host, Paul Roberts. I'm the cyber content lead at Reversing Labs. And we're very pleased to have in the studio Devin Lynch, who is the director for supply chain and technology security at the Office of the National Cyber Director or ONCD. Devin, welcome to Conversing Labs. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Me me too. I think first order of business, Devin, is tell us a little bit about the ONCD and about the work that you do there as director of supply chain and technology security. What's in your portfolio, as it were?
1: Absolutely. Let's start with the big ONCD question. ONCD is a new office in the Executive Office of the President. We were created, established by Congress in 2021, so very much new. And our mission is to advance national security, economic prosperity, and technical innovation through cybersecurity policy leadership. My boss's boss is acting director Kemba Walden, and she is by statute an advisor to the president on cybersecurity policy and strategy and efforts to increase ICTS security, national supply chain risk management, and vendor security. And I direct the supply chain portfolio for ONCD. So there's anything within supply chain trickles down my way.
0: So first, the inaugural cyber director was Chris Inglis. He stepped down actually just last month in February after really standing up the directorate. You've got an acting cyber director now. What were some of the challenges of standing up this organization? And uh, what did Chris leave
1: behind? The challenges, I think, are many because we haven't created an executive office within the EOP in thirty years. There's no manual. There's no turnkey. There's no YouTube video for how to do this. So very much trying to build a ship as it sails or the plane while it flies. Yeah. But with that are a lot of opportunities as well. Chris worked to establish relationships and establish the office. And Kemba was beside him for much of that journey. And with his transition to her, I don't see I see that as seamless. I see yeah. her vision slightly different because her perspective, her experiences, her diversity brings, are brought to bear and brings strengths that Chris didn't have. But at the same time, the foundation on which we rest is quite strong.
0: Could we just talk a little bit about your own kind of journey to cyber? Often these are really interesting stories. In your case, you spent most of your career in the military, in the Navy in particular for 17 years, went out, did some work in the private sector for security scorecard. Just talk about your own path. Did you start out with kind of cyber in your sites or did you find your way to information security, cybersecurity?
1: I found my way simply. So I have two careers that I'm in the Navy Reserve still. I'm approaching, I guess I'm closer to 18 than 17 years now, always as an intelligence professional. And through those 18 years we've had the profession go from intelligence to information dominance to information warfare. So the profession itself has has taken a cybersecurity journey, I think. But certainly the Navy and the DoD can be counted as premier cybersecurity organizations. They have funding, technology, training, and tools that many do not. And I've benefited greatly from those opportunities. Concurrently, I've had a policy career, a public policy career, that's largely focused on national security. 17 years ago, we didn't have the Facebook turned into Facebook, and we were two years away from the first iPhone. So it was a really different environment then, and we did not expressly identify cybersecurity as national security. That evolution has taken time. As in my policy roles, I was able to sit on Capitol Hill, in the executive branch at Homeland Security and the Department of Defense, and also in the private sector, as you mentioned, at Scorecard. And those opportunities to shape and discuss and influence Homeland Security or national security Mm -hmm. brought in cybersecurity in their own way. And I think that's been an interesting evolution for us all.
0: What did you learn when you were working at Security Scorecard? They focus on like layer eight threats a lot, right? Phishing and so forth. Uh, What did you take away from that experience?
1: A lot. The chief among that was the power of data and Mm. the level of visibility the private sector can and could have on either an attack surface or just online. When we are discussing threats like phishing, those are real and largely unsophisticated successful and one of the most prominent threat vectors online. What is interesting with the power of data is I didn't before appreciate how much data is available online through scrapers and scrubbers, port scanners, the public facing websites or databases. This is all available to the private sector and leverage for recommendations on your favorite online shopping store. And it is used by threat actors to sharpen their phishing attacks. Threat actors also siphon, collect, interrogate, and exploit the data that is found online. Um, and I didn't think, I thought I understood data security and the power of data before, but a different perspective from the private sector, I think.
0: One of the big products of ONCD, Office of National Cyber Director, came out recently, which is the National Cybersecurity Strategy or national cyber strategy document. Um, so blueprint document, really interesting one. And I think in some ways, revolutionary one, at least in the context of federal cybersecurity. Could you talk first of all, about what that strategy document is, and also like the role that ONCD played in assembling it from working across government?
1: Absolutely. So the ONCD coordinated and led the development of the National Cybersecurity Strategy, but it is certainly the work of many. And it builds off of the work this administration and the National Security Council have engaged since day one, since maybe most notably Executive Order 14028 on improving the nation's cybersecurity, as well as National Security Memorandum 5, which is which improves cybersecurity for critical infrastructure control systems. Mm -hmm. The cybersecurity strategy advances the nation's cybersecurity across five pillars. It's organized across five pillars. Uh, The first of which is we will defend critical infrastructure. The second is we will disrupt and dismantle threat actors. We will shape market forces to drive security and resilience. We will invest in a resilient future, and we will forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals." Now, all of these are a, we- a new way, not maybe per- not a new way of thinking, but an interesting new approach and a bold agenda for mm-hmm. what's to come, I think. And as we implement this strategy, We will make the investments in the technologies, in the people, and in the structures and processes needed to achieve those aspirations.
0: I think one of the big, I don't know if it's a shift in strategy, but it's definitely a position that's articulated in the strategy that I think, first of all, needed to be said and is probably overdue, is this notion of shifting liability away from end users, from consumers of technology, whether that's federal agencies or just businesses or ordinary consumers to the producers of the software. And one of the points the document makes is that we've really haven't done a good enough job holding software producers to account when the security of their software fails and people are victimized. Talk a little bit more about that shift in thinking and language and practically what it will mean in terms of the regulations that maybe emerge from this strategy.
1: Absolutely. And I think you have a spot on reading of the fundamental changes to the earlier point about phishing campaigns. Phishing attacks are successful because it does devolve risk down to the individual, the small business with the local government. And that's troubling. So, what the strategy does is calls for two fundamental shifts. The first is, as you said, we must rebalance the responsibility to defend cyberspace, and the second is we must realign incentives to favor long-term investments. So, to the first point, you know, the digital ecosystem too devolves risk to the not the lowest denominator, but the least capable and the least well resourced to fight against the world's most malicious cyber actors. And we think the security and resilience of cyberspace should not rest on a single person's constant vigilance. The digital ecosystem's biggest, most capable, best positioned actors, and that includes the federal government, can and should assume a greater share of the burden for mitigating cyber risk. And that in turn, I think, elevates our expectations of cyberspace's most capable actors and provides a pathway to re-architect the digital ecosystem so that the responsibility and security and resilience is more deeply woven into its technical and policy foundations. To the second change, realigning incentives to favor long-term investments. Look, cybersecurity is hard and it can be very expensive, especially when you don't know the exactly what data, what your attack surface is, or from, where the threats um, might arrive. So we must shift incentives so that when entities across the public and private sector are faced with trade-offs between an easy or temporary patch or fix and the durable long-term solution, the secure by design option, for example, that they will have the resources and the capabilities and the incentives to consistently choose the latter, choose to do the hard thing. The strategy recognizes existing shortcomings, quite simply, and it calls for change.
0: So talk, if you could, about uh, what parts of the strategy can be implemented just within executive branch agencies, for example, and which require congressional action and basically legislation to happen. Is there, because often with these announcements, oh, it's a big announcement, what's changed? And it's like, nothing's really changed. Like, it's a policy position. (laughs) It's important in that it reveals thinking, but practically everything is business as usual. Um, Are there parts of this plan that the Biden administration can put into effect without congressional approval, or is it all basically a blueprint for congressional lawmakers in the House or the Senate to take and then turn into laws and regulations?
1: I love this okay. question because I could put on just briefly my experience with a Senate staff.
0: Yeah, you've Hill worked on you've worked on the hell, yeah, yeah.
1: And I don't work on it now. So like the simple answer is I don't know the answer, but there are throughout the strategy you will find phrases like the federal government will blank. And these to my mind and my legislative eye will say these are the clearest instances of where the executive branch will leverage either existing authorities or bring certain resources to bear uh, around a specific strategic objective. I read throughout the strategy references to Biden-Harris initiatives of the Chips and Science Act, the IJA, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Inflation Reduction Act. These four bills passed by Congress, championed by the administration are part of our strategy and must be implemented. They are the law and we must execute and implement those laws. So those are certainly opportunities for the executive branch to press forward in line with the strategy and in concert. But there are also phrases, one comes to mind, there are instances where we call on working with Congress and certainly we'll need Congress's either new authorities or agreement alignment One objectives in the third pillar, talking about shifting liability for insecure software products and services, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to clarify, debate, and Congress must and will be a key voice and partner Mm -hmm. in meeting that objective. We can't just say we're gonna shift liability, establish liability for software products and services and prevent manufacturers and software publishers with market power from disclaiming liability by contract and establish higher standards of care for software without a dialogue with industry and with Congress Mm -hmm. and and agreement at the end of the day uh, among us all.
0: Yeah, that is the fly in the ointment right there is how to work with industry, which you obviously want to do. You don't want to just impose regulations from on high without really understanding the impact of those. Um, and at the same time, you want to you don't want to be solicitous of those affected by the legislation or the regulations that in fact in effect they become toothless and meaningless and just scoff laws, things that may be on the books, but practically have no impact on how anybody does business. And that would seem to me to be the challenge. Do you think, just taking the temperature there in Washington, D.C., that there is an appetite to, yes, consult with industry, but at the end of the day, say things got to change and, and we're going to make sure that they do change?
1: There's absolutely an appetite, and I would argue there's also an imperative to do so. I think it's 1.2, strategic objective 1.2 in the first pillar. It talks about increasing public-private partnerships, not just existing partnerships, but also creating new ones. And we don't operate in a vacuum. We have to do this together. The dynamic, evolving, undulating world that is cyberspace and the threats within are not going to stop because we disagree or it's hard. We have to do the hard thing. And we have to do that, I think, in concert and together.
0: So supply chain security, software supply chain security has been a big emphasis of the Biden administration going back to the executive order and some of the other regulations and guidance that have come out from NIST and others since then. What do you see happening with regard to federal oversight of software supply chain? And so we know for federal contractors, companies selling software and services into the federal government, They're looking for software bills and material and kind of accountability on what's in the software. Do you see that maybe expanding from the federal sector out just generally into the private sector?
1: I do. I think there's been a lot, as you said, and especially from the executive board of 14028, there has been a movement, and the champion within that is Dr. Alan Friedman over at CISA, now at CISA, previously at NTIA. And there is, I think, there are a lot of opportunities within the software supply chain and also the hardware supply chain, but especially in the software supply chain to rethink, re architect, reconsider security first rather than after, or as a bolt on. One of the initiatives we are working on from the White House stemmed maybe a year, almost a year and a half ago, 1428 came out, I think in May. And then later that winter log for shell zero day or this day one occurred. And then the White House convened the open source software community and leaders led by, on our side, led by Deputy Natural Security Advisor Ann Neuberger and Director Inglis at ONCD. And we brought in the community to discuss just the breadth and depth of the challenge before us. The open source ecosystem is open. It's the foundation of 80 to 90% of code that is written of software that is used whether it's Mm. open or proprietary so that is a uh, it's literally the bedrock in my mind of the software supply chain yeah so we brought in those groups and identify among other things the risks the opportunities before us and one of those opportunities surfaced at the time was centered around memory safe languages. Now, remember, I led with not being an engineer, but being on a cybersecurity journey. So correct me if I'm wrong here. But one of the the key risk drivers we, we surfaced was that memory unsafe programming languages are a leading and underinvested cause of much of the world's software vulnerabilities. Sure. So what is memory safety? To my understanding, Memory unsafety describes the underlying property of a programming language that allows programmers to introduce certain types of cybersecurity bugs that affect how the memory is used both spatially and temporally. So a simple example, if you have a list of 10 items and you write a program that says, find me the 11th, a memory unsafe language will look you know, top to bottom, back and forth, and into the memory for right. th- that 11th It's like
0: buffer overflow uh, exploits. Which are exactly. Right.
1: It won't immediately return an error unless... I, but a memory-safe language would, mm-hmm. or it doesn't allow for that to look for the data where it shouldn't be looking or where it isn't. But then when you think about this at scale, that is a pretty catastrophic from a cybersecurity perspective. And to, what blew my mind the most was yeah, there were the Slammer Worm in O3, the Heartbleed vulnerability in OpenSSL, and then the WannaCry ransomware attack are like big memory safety vulnerability examples. But what blew my mind is this is fixable. There's a technical solution to memory-safe languages. There are memory-safe and memory-unsafe languages mm-hmm. across yeah. the tech stack. Yeah. For an operating system kernel, you could use Rust. Or for mm-hmm. an iPhone app, you use Swift. There's 15 different examples of that up and down the stack but it'll be hard it's not c and c plus have been around as long as i've been on this planet and that's (laughs) long enough to be embedded and there are uh, again 80 90 percent of code used uh, includes most of that not least of which microsoft and i think youtube runs on it as well Mm -hmm. because there's performance there's function there's a lot of good and a lot of possibility but at the same time all of that good impossibility increases the attack surface to the initial point of the data, the visibility that's out there. And the second reason I'm I'm excited by this concept is the switch to memory-safe languages would have an outsized impact. There was research from, I believe, Microsoft and Google in the last few years that identified for software written in memory-unsafe languages mitigating... Excuse me, migrating into a memory safe language can eliminate up to 70% of the software's critical vulnerabilities. 70% of the 90% of the code pie. This is a huge opportunity, I think, and one with a technical solution. And that, I think, is the key for it is something to highlight that this is good engineering practices driving better cybersecurity policy. And that is something we haven't always seen, but with the Biden-Harris administration and my team in particular, there are engineers, there are coders, there are, there are cryptographers who explain to me what memory-safe languages are. Mm-hmm. And I helped explain to them ways in which the executive branch or the legislative branch might be able to surface, champion, and promote solutions that they've identified. So that's exciting.
0: That speaks a lot to the question of tech, what they sometimes refer to as technical debt in the federal government's case. Just a lot of legacy software and services and hardware too that run on vintage code. Let's call it. And in some agencies, like the IRS, that is truly vintage applications there, dating back to the early
1: 1970s. Paul, there are even examples, though of a leading edge. So there are four algorithms of the last year from NIST for post-quantum cryptography, the PQC algorithms, at least the two of which I'm, two of the four that I know of run on C, or C in assembly. And that is a product to my mind, you unpack that, that is a product as well as the only, uh, only open SSL is FIPS 140 TAC3 approved. So it's if the request for a PQC algorithm uh, must be FIPS 140 TAC 3, then it must also have OpenSSL. So we're also having conversations with NIST. What does that mean? What is the long-term, near-term mm-hmm. implication of that? Are there other alternatives to OpenSSL? Are there alternatives that could apply for a FIPS audit and be FIPS certified? There are, those are uh, I think opportunities for industry to to raise your hand and promote memory safety in their own way. And alternatives to like how Rust Mm -hmm. and Swift are safe.
0: Shifting to memory safe languages, better scrutiny of open source components in, you know, software and services. Those are really, those are boil the ocean type (laughs) (laughs) assignments. How do you, and which doesn't mean they can't happen. It just means it's going to be a process, right? It's going to take time. And hopefully over time, you're making the overall environment more secure, less vulnerable.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you, and we can do hard things. Yeah. We just need to start doing that. And from our perspective, showing that the federal government is invested and aligns incentives toward these goals is worthy. And that's also annotated in the strategy.
0: One of the big sticking points for industry is on the issue of attestation, right? And I know Executive Order 14.028 and 2218, so on, they focus on self-attestation. So let's let software publishers basically say to us that they have reviewed the security of their own wares and attest to their compliance with the guidelines that the federal government has laid out. Obviously, some people say that's the fox guarding the hen house that, you know, you need independent attestation of these, but that presents all kinds of problems with bottlenecks and who's going to do the attestation and so on. What are, you, what are your thoughts on the requirement as it stands around self-attestation? And where do you see that conversation going in the future? Could we get to a point where we move to more of an independent attestation model? Uh, for some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, what I think self-attestation began to do is to elevate from the IT shop into the C-suite that cybersecurity is not an engineering problem. It is a business quality problem. Uh, And I actually think that bears repeating. Cybersecurity is not an engineering problem. It is a business quality problem. And the market and the federal government through 14.028 and M22TAC-18 are soon going to demonstrate, I think, and will eventually show that products of low quality will not be purchased or will not uh, beat out those of higher quality. So, what I mean by that is products that don't use secure software development lifecycle practices, which are to these documents of lower quality, are then of lower value. So, what more needs to be done, I think, is not, is again, to move. The ones and zeros out of the CISO or the CTO shop Mm -hmm. to the Mm boardroom, to the CEO's office and turn those ones and zeros into dollar signs in the black ink and not the red ink. This is also what I learned from the private sector. The black ledger is better than the red ledger. Mm -hmm. But so if the cybersecurity improvements are driven from the top, then and the CEO's identify that the quality of their product is driven by the security and design, then the inclination, we hope, is that products built fast or cheap will not be of as good value and will lose out against market forces. And again, that makes cybersecurity a business problem, which I think is a huge win for self-attestation. However, it... However, it's taken to create that kind of
0: market pressure. Right. Exactly. Okay. Final question. Companies may be inclined to dismiss this as of, of, this a policy statement, but it doesn't really change anything, but that's obviously a big risk because sometimes these things actually turn into laws and regulations. So if you're out there, you're making software and services, maybe you are selling into the federal space. Um, maybe not, but What would your recommendations be for how to start moving the battleship, you know, steering the sort of ocean liner of your software development process and your company towards compliance, towards where these regulations and guidelines are headed? What would you recommend for producers out there?
1: Admitting the problem is a huge first step. You're boiling. <laughs> in our personal lives
0: the- as well as in the business <laughs> context.
1: Yeah. We're trying to boil the ocean. We recognize that. But there are identi- identifiable solutions to many of these challenges. The earlier example for open source, s- switching to Swift or Rust, isn't impossible, it will take time, but recognizing that there is a net benefit, and that is the compass rose direction that this strategy identifies, is valuable. And at the same time, to the Pillar 1 option of, or objective to engage the public-private sector more, we need to do that. We need to recognize that Cybersecurity is a team sport. There, there are CISA, NSA, the NSC, they're all the acronyms around town. There are excellent champions and resources available to learn and to uh, request for help, phone a friend across the tech stack, across the hardware and software supply chains. But if you're gonna bury your head in the sand, you're gonna get buried and that's not gonna be a successful outcome for any business.
0: Okay, final question. So you're Director of Supply Chain Technology Security at the ONCD. What's on your agenda for 2023? What are you going to be focusing on, Devin?
1: My thesis statement is the National Cybersecurity Strategy. When I read the strategy, I look at pillars three, four, and five. In those pillars, I see supply chains, the best represented, most represented. So there are four lines of effort I'm going to focus on. Number one is the software supply chain, as we identified with the Open Source Software Security Initiative, the os 3 i effort, and the memory-safe languages. Um, That'll be one of the principal projects in my job jar. The hardware supply chain is also critically important. And with those investments right across the strategy in CHIPS, IJA, BIL, and the IRA, CHIPS production in particular, is going to roll out quickly and mm-hmm. invest in a supply chain here or near that is has not occurred before. And that is really exciting and an exciting opportunity as well to build by design some security baked in so that the resilience and the defensibility sought by the act in investing locally and not internationally is, manifests. The third line is global supply chains, and the fifth pillar identifies international partners and allies as a critical part of our Mm -hmm. ability to secure global supply chains. And that is also the clearest expression of supply chain in the strategy. Uh, So I'm excited to begin working with State's CDP Ambassador Fix Shop there, the new Bureau for Cybersecurity Diplomacy as well as the USTR, the United States Trade Representative, Hmm. and the Department of Commerce. At the state, USTR and Commerce have footprints all over the world and are actively engaged with the international community in cybersecurity. And the administration's interest, need, and want to come back into those standards organizations and our overarching theme to harmonize regulation will need to occur in across borders as well. Hmm. And the fourth line is more boring and wonky. It's related to policy and budgets. There have been sixteen executive orders in the last ten years on supply chain or ICTS. Sixteen executive orders, none of which have the same phrasing. Yeah. So from my role as to support Ms. Walden is to figure out what is through what is the through line yeah. what is the what are the principles in all of these EOs and how can we make those clear and identify also are there any gaps or what gaps might exist hmm. that that's a paper exercise but for a policy shop that's our bread and butter too yeah Devin is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to say You had made a comment earlier that both that we're boiling the ocean and that yeah. there will be resistance across the across industry or even pockets of the industry yeah. that have either prevented these ideas from succeeding or will prevent them in the future. And one of the things my co-workers had mentioned to me is we don't get easy problems. The easy problems don't land at the White House. Mm-hmm. So there's something... I don't know. That's not an easy question, and that's I suppose also a humble brag that I'm not interested in promoting. Mm-hmm. But the idea, between the idea that any of this is easy, is no. Like all of this is hard. I've got four very hard lines of effort ahead of my way. Or just a commentary on that. Yeah,
0: yeah. This is the kind of big challenge of our democracy right now, which is trying to balance the needs of the few versus the many, especially when the few are pretty well healed and can afford to pay lobbyists and stuff to go and talk to lawmakers. And I think it is the consumers and the small businesses and the communities. I work on my local communities, IT advisory committee, just the scourge of ransomware and all this stuff really being felt at the local level, the scourge of cyber attacks on the elderly and things like that is just, is just epidemic. But those folks don't, have a lobbyist there in Capitol Hill. So trying to keep that in focus when you're having these policy conversations. I've been covering this space for 20 years and the sort of public-private partnership. It's a, a friendly-sounding phrase. Yes, of course, we want public-private partnerships, but at the end of the day, you got to set a bar.
1: <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah, you got to set a bar and really ask people to clear it. And that has been hard. It's been hard to do that. It is hard. I'd heard...
1: And one of the analogies I think Ms. Newberger likes to make is related to cars and how the automotive industry—it t- was hard to move to seatbelts and airbags. I uh, seven years ago, my son was born, mm. and, and the a week before that, I was looking at the car magazine that said, "What is the safest mm-hmm. SUV, family-friendly SUV?" And I drive a CRV now. Yeah. Like there is <laughs> because right. I know experts thought about it, and I know that if. That the smartest person, to my mind, on car safety is the CEO of a car manufacturer, mm-hmm. because it matters to them. Same to our earlier point, right. of trying to get cybersecurity a matter to everyone, not just the system.
0: Right. and if you But if you roll back the clock to the 1950s and 60s, right, the automakers were fighting seatbelts tooth and nail, saying that, no, yeah. oh, it's going to make people associate cars with danger and it's going to ruin our market. And, and it took... Federal legislation in the 60s, and then I grew up in the 70s and 80s, which was the sort of period where, yes, seatbelts were required, but nobody used them. And then, when <laughs> the 80s and 90s, you started to get state-level laws that said actually you, you have to wear those when you're driving. And that that the combination of that was what led us today to, you know, most people being like, if I don't have my seatbelt on, I feel like naked and exposed. It changed behavior. But it was, it started with laws. It started with just government regulations. Put them in the car and then wear them.
1: (laughs) Even then, though, the timeline there, we often walk over. But You just identified two, three decades. Decades, yeah.
0: On a fairly simple, like, it's really dangerous. You get in a car accident without a seatbelt. All the data tells us that you're going to get a lot more injured. It's like there was no ambiguity about it. Mm
1: -hmm. And it still
0: took decades. Yeah, I think that's right. That's exactly the point. And here in... In the context of cyber threats and attacks, again, the data is pretty clear, but the impact is easier to wave your hands at. And these cyber attacks happen and they make headlines, but then they fade into the background.
1: At the same time, the speed of cyber is the yeah. world of I'm still on a four wheel car, <laughs> as my great whoever would have been, relation would have been. Yeah. But cyber, I mean. Yeah.
0: 10, ten me or AI. 20 in the context of cyber crime and threats. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think about completely, what they're going to look like. Completely
1: different world. Yeah, 20 years ago, we had the Facebook and no iPhone. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. What horror did we live in? Yeah.
0: <laughs> How do we even get by? <laughs> Devin Lynch, Director of Supply Chain and Technology Security at the Office of the Nap- National Cyber Director. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Conversing Labs podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Paul. Have a good day. You too.